Welcome to the Smart Money Mama Show, where moms get real about money to help you find your financial confidence and live your best life. Now let's talk money, mamas. Hey there, I'm your host, Chelsea Brennan. And mamas, today on the show, we're talking to Mindy Jensen. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever considered flipping houses? What about living in them with your kids through the renovations? Sounds kind of crazy, right? Well, Mindy has been doing live-in flips for over 20 years. After leaving a job she wasn't passionate about to be home with her kids until they were both in school, Mindy is now the community manager for Bigger Pockets, a hub of insight, advice, and community for all real estate investors, the host of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, and the author of the book, How to Sell Your Home. Real estate helped Mindy and her husband achieve financial independence and create freedom in their lives. Today, she's going to share with us how live-in flips work, what it looks like with kids, and how to sell your house for the best price, whether you're a real estate investor like her or just ready for your next home. As always, stick around until the end of the show to hear my top three takeaways from this episode, or you can head over to smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Mindy for our complete show notes. Are you ready, mamas? Let's get started. Mindy, thank you so much for joining us. I'm super excited to have you on the Smart Money Mama show. Chelsea, thanks for having me. I am super excited to be here today. We talk all the time about real estate, and there's so many moms that are nervous to do it, and you have been doing it for quite a while now, and you're a licensed real estate agent, right? That is correct. I have been investing in real estate since 1998, which makes me sound so old. (laughs) (laughs) But I have been, you know what, I am kind of old. So there you go. I've been investing for a really long time. And I have been an agent for about six years. Now, the craziest part of your story that I want to start with is you guys move about every two years. What does that look like? And why do you move so often? It looks like a disaster. You would think moving so frequently, I would know what I'm doing and I don't. Why do we move so frequently? So the government has given everybody in America this wonderful gift of tax-free money. It's called Section 121 Exclusion. And basically, if you live in a house and own it as your primary residence for two of the last five years, you can sell it. And the difference between what you paid for it, what you put into it, and what you sell it for is tax-free. So let's say on a recent property, I bought it for $176,000. It was ugly as sin. And I put about $100,000 into it. I could sell it. I haven't sold it yet, but I could sell it for approximately $550,000. And the difference between $276,000 and $550,000, let's call it $576,000 so I don't have to do math, it's (laughs) $300,000. And normally, if you're selling an asset for such a significant gain, that's called a capital gain. And you would owe taxes on that. But since it is my primary residence, I owe $0 in taxes because there's an exclusion up to $500,000 if you're married and up to $250,000 if you're single. And since I am married, I get the $500,000 exclusion. That is awesome. And that's a lot of savings. And I want to jump into like how you pick the right flip. But first, how old are your kids? I have a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old. How do they feel about moving houses? So our last house, we were actually there for five years or six years. I'm sorry, six years because we had made friends on the street. And as a kid, I grew up moving all the time. I've never in my whole adult life lived in a house for more than five years, except for this last house when we hit six. And I was like, yes, this is so awesome. But the girls had made a friend and we were just going to stay there forever. And then the friend moved to Florida. So I'm like, well, there's nothing keeping us on this street. Let's move again. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that probably makes it easier, right? Once their friend in that little community was gone for them to up and move somewhere else. It does. And not only that, but the neighborhoods, we were looking at two different neighborhoods and the two different neighborhoods we were looking at, they both had friends in. So it was easier. We lived on a dead end street. There wasn't anybody for them to play with. And now they've got a neighborhood of, I think there's 318 homes in our neighborhood. So there's a lot more opportunity for kids to be here. And they're out of the house all the time. Which is great to hear. It's like that bike gang we all had when we were growing up, right? Of just going around the neighborhood. (laughs) Exactly. Which is awesome. So that $176,000 flip, how do you find these houses? And then are you doing like a typical 20% deposit? Like I know for a lot of people, they're like, okay, are you paying cash? What are you doing to facilitate this? 
So I am looking for a house that I can move into. I'm not looking for something that has severe foundation issues. I will not move into a house that has methamphetamine. Oh, the like residue? Yes, a meth house. I'm not looking for mold. I'm looking for a property I can move into. I don't care if it's ugly. I want it to be ugly, but structurally sound. Okay. And that house was part of a now defunct program called the Fannie Mae Home Path Program, where it was a foreclosure. Mm -hmm. Fannie Mae takes it back and then they sell it, but they're looking to sell it to somebody who wants to live there. And I bought it in 2013 when the market in my area really started to take off and people were flipping houses. And Fannie Mae really wants to put homeowners in the property. So they took my offer over probably a higher offer because I made a really low offer, probably a higher offer from an investor because the investor wasn't going to live there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that priority. Yeah. So how do I find properties? I'm an agent. I have a search set up all the time. And I mean, just because... I'm an agent doesn't mean somebody else who isn't an agent can't find a property too. You just want to have a search set up for properties that need work. You want to look for words like as is or, you know, estate sale. A lot of times an older homeowner will pass away and they haven't really kept up with the house. Maybe it's very clean, but it isn't up to date. Um, You want something that you can update and, you know, you don't have to start off jumping in with both feet, tearing it out to the studs. My first flip was an accidental flip. I bought a condo for $50,000 because it was all I could afford. It had carpet, but it had this really ugly linoleum floor, and I wanted to put in a nice ceramic tile. All the walls were weird. I wanted to paint them a nice color. I put in a new light fixture in the kitchen, and I sold it for $75,000 when I got married, and I thought, Oh, I'm going to do that again. (laughs) I'm rich. I'm rich. I'm rich. $25,000. It paid off all my debt. So I started my marriage with no debt. And I sold it because my husband had a house and his house had belonged to his grandmother. It was outdated. It had pink carpeting and pink walls. And we put in regular color carpeting and painted the walls and sold it for a $100,000 profit. It was There were some extenuating circumstances there, like we were able to buy it low because it was part of an inheritance and whatever. But, you know, you're really just looking for properties that are unattractive that you can make look really pretty. Is there a good time of year to find these properties? Like I'm thinking about spring, right? When it's usually super busy and there's all kinds of sellers and buyers on the market. Like, is there a benefit to being able to buy off season? There absolutely is a benefit to being able to buy off season. We just bought a new house in September. And this was a strange confluence of events. The owners had passed away. Their son, I think, was in a bit of legal trouble. They were heavy smokers, heavy smokers. So this house reeked of cigarettes. It has a pool in the backyard. And a pool is not really – I'm in Colorado, and a pool is not a desirable trait here. So there were just a lot of things that kept people away. The cigarette smoke was really, really, I mean, that kept me away at first. When it first came on the market, I walked through it. I'm like, oh my goodness, no way. But there's this little machine called the ozone machine, and you can get it on Amazon for about $80. I mean, look it up if you're really interested in how ozone works, but basically it spits out O3 and either encapsulates the smoke or destroys the smoke. I'm not sure. My house doesn't smell like smoke anymore. For $80 and a weekend of moving this thing around the house, you cannot be in the house when you're using the ozone machine. So, you know, if you're selling a house to buy the new house that smells like smoke, you might want to negotiate a later closing date or early entry or something so that you can get rid of the smoke. You can't be in there. Your pets can't be in there. But 80 bucks. 80 bucks. 80 bucks and a weekend. And as a real estate agent, how much do you think the price would have been different if that house did not smell like smoke? They listed it originally for $100,000 higher than I purchased it for. Wow. <laughs> and not, I don't think all of that is attributable to the smoke, but I think a large portion of that is. We just got an, appraised, an appraisal and it was it appraised for $435 and we paid $465. So I'm trying to do math in my head quickly, which is never a good idea. What is that, $70,000 more? Yeah. So- I mean, there's smoke-filled houses are great because nobody wants them and it's not that hard to get rid of the smell. 
But I feel like I didn't answer your question, is there benefits to being able to buy off season? Yeah, the reason people are buying in the spring is because they want to get their kids into school next year. So they look in the spring, they move over the summer, they're all ready for school in the new district. My kids go to a charter school and we are a school of choice city. So we can go to whatever school we want. So that's not a huge factor for me, but that is a factor for some other people. So, you know, if you're looking for a house that you want to flip like this, you want to be in the good school district because those are the houses that are selling first. And you buy these houses that need work, right? And besides the ozone thing, which is a couple of days out of the house and you fix it, most of these repairs you're doing while you're living there, right? Yes. You can install new flooring while you're living there. You can paint a wall while you're living there. You can rehab a whole bathroom while you're living there as long as you have more than one. And frankly, you can do it even if you only have one. <laughs> it just stinks. Right. So like, what? just tell me what that looks like, right? Because I think that some people are super intimidated even by doing renovation projects in their forever homes, right? People who aren't doing live-in flips. So what advice do you have for people that are like, how do you do those projects without completely ripping your hair out? Well, you need to reserve at least one space that isn't being renovated right now. So a bedroom or all the bedrooms. It's nice to sometimes have a place to walk away from the disaster. But yeah, if you're renovating a bathroom, most houses these days have more than one bathroom. If they only have one bathroom, you have to kind of time it right. You know, maybe everybody goes on vacation except the one person who's doing the work or you go away on vacation and have somebody come in and do the work Yeah, while you're gone. But if you have more than one bathroom, it's a lot easier. You just renovate one bathroom at a time. So you always have a shower. You always have a toilet. You always have a sink. Renovating a kitchen takes a little pre-planning. I do a lot of crockpot meals when I'm <laughs> renovating the kitchen because I'm still really frugal and I don't want to just go out to dinner every single day for, you know, a week or two weeks or however long it takes. But, you know, hanging cabinets, even like if you're doing it by yourself, we do a lot of the work ourselves because finding a contractor can be really difficult. Right now the market is booming. So contractors are working on the big projects. They're working on the projects where the people will pay them. And I mean, not that I won't pay them, but <laughs> sometimes if you contact a contractor, that's a lot of words to say. That, that's hard, um, yeah. <laughs> And they're really busy, they might throw out a really high price because if you're willing to pay that much more, they'll find time in their schedule to do it. And I'm not willing to pay that much more. I've done this now. This is our ninth live-in flip. So I know how to hang cabinets. I know how to do plumbing and electrical and all the flooring and painting and all of that. So it's not that hard, but you know, finding somebody to do the work it just takes a little bit of pre-planning. I've done a lot of dishes in the bathtub, um, a lot of crockpot meals. The air fryer is an amazing invention in the Instant Pot. So you can, you know, plan things like that. It's amazing how much of your kitchen you can replace now with like small appliances plugged in wherever. Yes, it really is amazing. I mean, think of how many meals you can make in your Instant Pot or, oh, yeah. you know, your crockpot. And really doing kitchen remodel is not that difficult. You pull all the cabinets out, you put new cabinets back in, put in your appliances, wait for the guy to come with the countertop because that's not something I do myself. The more planning you do in advance, the easier it is to live through. That makes a lot of sense. And what you just said brought up two questions, but I want to mention on the, the contractor thing. We bought our first house when Boston had its worst winter ever. like, And we bought it the day the winter snow started. So they broke the snow record of all time, but it didn't start snowing until February. So they got all the snow over three weeks. Oh my goodness. So we bought the house and in five days, I like was in the office and I came out and there was water just dripping out of the foyer. And I was just like, oh my God, what happened? So it turned out we had an ice dam. We had water running through our attic, through our master bedroom, through our foyer and into the basement. And you talk about the price gouging, everyone had this issue. Everyone in Boston was having this problem and we could not get anyone to come. This was February. We didn't get a contractor to come until May. <laughs> and then even when they came, like we it went through the insurance and we never even had to pay the deductible on our insurance because they were so busy, they forgot to bill our insurance. And like once a year went by, the insurance was like, well, we'll just wipe it. <laughs> 
<laughs> wow. But it was crazy, the waiting and like the trying to get contractors and some of the quotes that we got that were just enormous because the demand was so high. It is really hard when it's a busy season, when it's especially when it's a very busy season. Right. I mean, what do you do? In that instance, you have to pay it. Mm-hmm. It's tough. And I think you learn too, right? Like, so for a bunch of it, we cut some drywall out and we put dryers in and we went and patched. There still was a lot of work for contractors to do afterwards, but we went to YouTube and we started to figure it out, which begs the question. One of the things I was going to bring up was, what do you recommend for people who are like, well, I'm just not handy and I can't do this? Like, how do you start learning the basics and where, what can anyone do? Well, you just named the holy grail of self-teaching uh, <laughs> is YouTube. If you want to learn how to do something, you have to know the name of the thing. How do I hang drywall? Look that up on YouTube. There's, I don't know, 500,000 videos to choose from to learn how to hang drywall. Pro tip, it's heavy. Get a drywall hanger, which is this like tripod looking thing with these big weird arms. And it's, I don't know, two or $300 and worth its weight in gold if you're going to try and hang drywall yourself. That's actually one of the jobs that I prefer to hire out because it's so messy. And the amount they charge me is less than what I could do it for myself, given all of my time. Because they come in and they just bling and it's up. And they come through with this, it looks like a bazooka. They come through with this giant thing and mud all the walls. They like, they tape them together so that you can't see the seams. And it is an art. I don't possess the skills. I appreciate the talent and I hire that one out. Same with roofing, same with cement work, and same with gutters, which seem super easy, but are super not. And if you screw them up, you're going to have a big problem. Exactly. Exactly. But anybody can paint. If you want to learn how to paint a wall, watch some videos on YouTube. There's this technique called cutting in where you you don't tape all the corners. You just get real close with the paint. Look that up. How do you cut in when painting a wall? And there's, I don't know, 50 pages of links to these videos. And YouTube is fantastic. If you're not handy, look it up on YouTube or Home Depot, Lowe's, the big box home improvement stores have classes. Here's how you lay tile. Tile's not hard unless you don't know what you're doing. And then, you know, I don't do brain surgery. I don't do, you know, because I don't know how. I don't want to know how. But like tiles easy. Don't YouTube brain surgery, Mindy. I bet they have it. I haven't YouTubed it because that's gross. <laughs> but I bet they have videos on, you know, everything. But you can look it up on YouTube. Your library is a great source for books. I still have the Home Depot plumbing book called like Plumbing 123. It's an excellent step-by-step how to do each thing. If you aren't handy and you want to be, there's a way to find it out. And even your library, right? Our library rents out tools and not like, you know, drywall hangers, but you can go get power tools and drills and all that kind of stuff and just rent them out for the weekend or for the week. If you're just trying something new, right? You're like, I want to test this project in the bathroom or whatever. Exactly. A lot of those tools are worth buying. I mean, definitely look at how much is it going to cost to rent it versus how much is it going to cost to buy it? And are you going to do it again? But oh my goodness, I have so many tools. Yeah. The library is of course free, (laughs) but when you're renting it somewhere else, I could totally see the price. And then the second question I wanted to ask you is you mentioned being very frugal. And I know that this real estate has tied into you and your husband's financial journey. So can you tell me a little bit about your guys' bigger financial goals that you've now achieved and how real estate played into it? So we wanted to become financially independent. I was a stay-at-home mom and my husband was a computer programmer for a medical device. And when you program computers for medical devices, there's different rules in place. But one day he discovered that there was a bug in the code and the bug could kill somebody if it didn't get fixed. So he was super stressed. He's like, I can't live like this anymore. How do I quit my job? And he banged it out on his computer and discovered Mr. Money Mustache and said, you know what? This is a bunch of crap. This guy is lying. (laughs) He's selling something, but he kept reading. And as he was reading, he's like, oh, it's just a math problem. Mm -hmm. Numbers don't lie. And he started doing math and he started thinking about it. He's like, we could retire early. I don't have to work till I'm 65. I can retire a lot sooner. And when he told me that, I was like, yeah, go ahead and do it because you are miserable at your job and you can find something else. And What happened was we did the math and we discovered that we spend approximately $40,000 a year. 
And just like everybody, it seems like everybody in the financial independence community has a magic number of a million dollars. That's their FI number, their financial independence number. And we were already halfway there because we had been investing in real estate and in the stock market. Yeah. And the real estate kind of funded the stock market and the stock market funded the real estate. It was this cyclical thing. We would move from house to house to house every two years, fixing up houses because that just generated a lot of income. And then you mentioned earlier, we put down 20% because then we don't have to pay private mortgage insurance. Mm-hmm. So, And you also get lower rates typically when you're it's a primary residence than an investment property, right? That is correct. You get the owner-occupant rate. We have good credit scores, so we get a lower rate because of that. We put down 20%, so the bank isn't taking such a big chance on us when you put down you know, a much lower percentage, the bank is kind of holding the bag. It's a lot easier for you to walk away if you don't have a lot of skin in the game. So we put a lot of skin in the game. We don't pay insurance either. Yeah. So we became financially independent. I think it was a week before my husband turned 40. Congratulations. Thank you. And then we doubled it, I think, in the last couple of years. It's amazing once you get to the bigger numbers, how the compounding speeds up, right? And your real estate too, but. Yes, it took. I don't want to say it took a long time to get to a million, but like 20 years, 20 years of investing. And, you know, once we started paying attention to it was also when the market started going crazy. So obviously it becomes easier. But yeah, as you compound your returns, it just accelerates so rapidly. It was 20 years to the first million and what, six to the second? Yeah, that's awesome. So Carl, your husband retired. Yes, that is correct. He no longer has a formal job which is very exciting. Uh, I'm sure he has other projects going on all the time. Oh, of course he does. I don't think anyone who pursues that kind of like financial independence can then just sit on their bum all the time. But you went from stay-at-home mom to now you went back to work once you were financially independent. So how did that decision come around? So I had always planned to be a stay-at-home mom. No judgment to working moms, but that was just always my plan. We worked, my husband and I worked and you know planned it out so that we were financially in a place where I could stay home. I did not leave a career. I just left a job. And I was kind of happy to leave it, frankly. (laughs) But then it was also always my plan to go back to work when my littlest was starting kindergarten. And I was looking, you know, what am I going to do? It's just started thinking about it. And I had found this website, Bigger Pockets, maybe a year and a half before then. And I was just fascinated by the website. Here was a place where people talk about real estate. People like appreciate the information I have. Because I'll be driving my kids around town. I'm like, look at that house. Can you believe they listed that for four sixty nine? I can't believe that. <laughs> like in, in the backseat, mom, we don't care. <laughs> but the bigger pockets people are like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> exactly. Here was this place where like I found my tribe and people would talk about real estate. I could give advice and people were excited to receive it. And it was just amazing. And they posted that they were looking for somebody that had all the qualifications that I had. And I was really kind of angry when I first heard, when I first read that job posting, because it was April and my littlest one wasn't going to start kindergarten until August. And I'm a stay-at-home mom. I can't work if I'm a stay-at-home mom. Like That's how that works. So I didn't tell my husband about it because I was like just so disappointed that I wasn't going to be able to get it. And then Somebody asked, hey, how long is this job open? And they said, oh, it's open until we fill it. And I thought, oh, okay, maybe they'll hold off. So too late for the long story short, but it worked out really well. I went part-time over the summer until she went into school. And then I was full-time after that. And it was always my plan to go back. So I was very excited to go back. And it was just, like I said before, I didn't leave a career. I left a job. Mm -hmm. I never felt like I am just amazing at this job and they are so lucky to have me until I got to bigger pockets. And even like they're so lucky to have me is kind of snotty to say, but like it's not though. They were looking (laughs) for somebody who has all of the things that I have and all of the things I have is because I have been investing in real estate for so long. So it's not like somebody could just pick it up on the fly. It's like lifelong experience comes from a life of experience. It, you know, you can't read about it in a book. So it was a really great confluence of events that caused me to 
have this amazing job. And we actually had two jobs for a year. And when you go from a stay-at-home mom who does all the things to Mm -hmm. a woman who's working while he's also working, then there's more of a juggling act. And it was actually really difficult for us. And, you know, I have to acknowledge that the privilege of being able to have a husband who quits his job is tremendous. And I'm not trying to, you know, act like, you know, wow, having two jobs was so hard. That is really hard. Kudos to everybody who is able to do it. Even more kudos to the single moms out there who are handling this because you are a much better person than I am. I just could not handle a job and kids. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's really tough. So they're, they're really out there killing it, but they are, my husband's a stay at home dad. And we talk all the time about how do parents do it? Like we see it in our community and I know they're out there crushing it, but even just the half days at school and random days off, like, I don't know how they're juggling it all. It's amazing. Well, and as we're recording this, the coronavirus is just starting to enter the United States and they're already talking about closing schools and Japan is closed. All their schools are closed for like a month. And I'm thinking to myself, thank God one of us is home and can watch the girls, be there with the girls. They're not old enough to be by themselves. Yeah. You know, not all day. I don't know what parents are going to do if they have to do that. I hope they don't. But yes. We hope they don't and that everyone stays safe and healthy. Yes. But my tribe is going to be upset if I don't pick your brain about your lifelong knowledge about selling homes because you wrote the book. How to Sell Your Home. I did write the book. You did write the book. So we're going to talk about that right after we take a quick word from our sponsors who helped us make this episode possible. Today's podcast is brought to you by Debt.com. Debt.com offers free expert financial education, self-help guides, and professional solutions to make personal finance and getting out of debt stress-free. If you're feeling overwhelmed by monthly payments or debt balances, but don't know who to turn to, one of their debt specialists can provide a personalized analysis and recommendations on which option may be the best for your unique situation. You can learn more by visiting smartmoneymamas.com backslash debt or by calling their free support line at 844-462-8280 to discuss your options. That number again is 844-462-8280. Debt.com for when life happens. All right, Mindy. So you are a licensed real estate agent. How long have you been an agent? I have been licensed for six years. Very exciting. And do you recommend um, someone selling their house to hire a real estate agent? Or do you think it makes sense to ever do for sale by owner? So I actually, before I was an agent, I did sell for sale by owner three times. And it is not the easiest thing in the world. It's not the hardest thing in the world. It depends on your motivation. Now, if you are moving across the country for a new job and you have to sell your house in order to move, maybe trying it out by yourself is not the best choice at that time. But if you're just, you know, if you're moving because you want to rather than because you have to, I would say try it out. You know, you can list your property on Craigslist. You can list your property on Facebook Marketplace. There's a lot of, I mean, you can even post an ad in the newspaper if you're really wanting to throw back to the oldies. Can you only list on Zillow if you're an agent? You can list on Zillow as a regular homeowner. You can put a make me move price on it. My husband did that once. He just pulled a number out of thin air and then somebody (laughs) contacted him. He's like, no, we're not ready to sell right now. Oops. But, and if you are doing this, you know, make sure that you are aware of all that goes into a transaction. When a real estate agent is representing a buyer, they are typically paid by the seller. The seller pays that buyer's agent commission. So if you're selling by yourself, probably you're selling to save the commission. You're saving the sell side commission. If there's an agent representing a buyer, it's a good idea to offer a buy side commission. It's not a requirement. You can just say, nope, I'm not. If your buyer wants to pay you, they can pay you, but I'm not going to pay you. But I think that a lot of people get really nervous about selling their house. They pay an agent because the agent has done it before. They know all the steps and they're you know happy to walk you through it to make sure that you're getting the best price. There is data that says, I think it's 10%, maybe it's 7%. You get more money for your property. You sell it for more when you use a real estate agent because they are more aware of the the neighborhood. 
But if you've got a little time to try it out, try it out and see what happens. Once your home is listed, like when you say listed, that means it's been put into the multiple listing service, which is where all the real estate agents are finding the properties. So once it's been listed, it starts gathering market time or days on market. But if until it's listed there, it has no days on market. So if you've got a little time, try it on Craigslist. Maybe you find a buyer or maybe you don't. And then you put it on the market and it hasn't gained any extra. You haven't gained all this time. You don't have people suspicious of why the house has been on the market for 300 days. <laughs> well, exactly. And you know, when I see, and right now we're in a very hot market, my local market is very hot. So if I see a house that's been on the market for 300 days, instantly I'm thinking something's wrong. There's broken foundation, there's meth, there's mold, there's all three. So yeah, if you want to try it out, try it out like that first. Makes sense. Yeah. We've used real estate agents both times we bought houses and it was invaluable. So, but in any profession, right, there's good <laughs> agents and poor agents. So how do you make sure you find a good one? Is there a way to interview them or is there certain credentials you should be looking for? Nope. It's a crapshoot. Roll the <laughs> dice. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. There are things that you want to ask them. First of all, you want to ask them how many houses they've sold. There is value in somebody being a brand new agent. They don't have a ton of clients. They can devote all their time to you. Mm -hmm. Or they're brand new. They don't know what they're doing yet. And they're willing to learn. Are you willing to learn with them? You know, if you've got more time, maybe you can gamble on that. Do they have a second job and they're only available, you know, nights and weekends? Well, most of the people who are looking at properties also have jobs. And are also available only nights and weekends. So maybe that works out. Maybe it doesn't. It You know, you want somebody who can answer your question. And if they can't answer your question, you're calling them all the time and they're not responding. Maybe they're not the right agent for you. You mm -hmm. definitely want somebody who's responsive. Because if you have never done this before, you don't know what you don't know. And when there's a deadline coming up and you're like, hey, I have a question. And they're like, sorry, I'm at work. You know, maybe that's not the best person for you. On the other hand... The super experienced agent is probably working with a team. So while you think that you're working with Chelsea Brennan, agent extraordinaire, <laughs> you're actually working with Chelsea's listing agent. So, you know, you might not want to work with Chelsea's listing agent. You want to work with Chelsea and that's the whole reason you chose them. And Chelsea's like, well, that's not really what I cover now. So I would just say, you know, you definitely want to ask them, how many houses have you sold? How long have you been in the business? Is this your full-time job? Do you invest in real estate? Do you know this market? Is this part of the market that you cover? I am licensed in the state of Colorado, but I don't know anything it's a broad about market. <laughs> it's, you know, it's a little bit bigger. I don't know anything about the western slope, which is what they call the western half of the state on the other side of the Rockies. And frankly, I'm up in the northern, northeastern part of Colorado. I don't know much about the southeastern section of Colorado. So just because I'm listed here doesn't, or licensed here doesn't mean that I'm going to be the best choice for you. How many houses have you sold in the last six months? What percentage of list price are your houses selling for? Because this is, you know, sometimes there's this tactic that agents will take. Every agent does their research and they say, houses in your area are selling between $250,000 and $265,000. And somebody comes in and says, I'll list it for $285,000. Oh, well, that's more. I'm Clearly, they know my house is worth more. I'm going to go with them. And you list it high. It sits there on the market. It gains days on market. And then you reduce the price. You reduce the price. You end up selling for $245,000 because the market price really was two fifty dollars to two sixty-five. dollars Listing it higher does not mean you're going to get a better offer. When somebody is looking at your house, they're also looking at other houses in that price range. So yeah. they see your house, a $260,000 house, being listed at the $285,000 house price range. You're competing with all those houses that may have granite countertops and stone tile floors and yours doesn't. So you're going to lose. The people who are looking in your 250 to 265 realistic price range aren't looking at your 285 listed house. So when you were talking to agents, ask them what percentage of the list price are your houses selling for? 
they're selling for 98%. Oh, okay. You're more realistically giving me a price range than somebody who is, you know, oh, well, they're selling for, you know, 80% of list price. That's a good stat to know. Are there any questions we should ask if we're also using that real estate agent to buy our next house, right? If we're selling because we're moving in to somewhere else in the area that might help them guide us to the right house to purchase? Uh, Yeah. How many houses have you helped people buy? There's listing agents and buying agents, and a lot of people do both. But it's really easy to list a house. It's a lot more difficult to help somebody buy a house. You're showing them multiple houses. You want to know if they're going to cut you off. Some agents will say, you know, like, like, is there a limit to houses that you will show me? I'm only going to show you 15 houses. I think that's kind of a bad attitude to have. I will show you as many houses as you want to see because, first of all, I want to see them too. The main reason I got my license was so I could go into these houses and look at them whenever I wanted to. Another thing you want to ask is, and this is for buyers or sellers, how do you communicate? I like a text message because then I can respond at my convenience. I don't want you to call me 50 times. Or I want you to call me. I don't want to text. Both communication methods are valid, but you don't want to be a text receiver when you've got a phone call maker and vice versa. Regarding asking the agent for who's listing your house and helping you buy, you want to know you know, when should I list my house? Should I go and find a house first? Is it a buyer's market or is it a seller's market? I currently live in a seller's market. And when I sell my house, I can sell it in a heartbeat. But then I have a hard time finding another house. I need to rent my house back from my buyers in order to be able to find a house. Or I need to find a house first and then sell my house. Um, So you just want to know the state of the market. Yeah, that's great. When we were interviewing our first agent in Boston, one of the pieces of advice we got that was great was to find a personality fit as well. Yes. And so we, my husband and I, are not super emotional about houses and where we live. So we we went through a few before we found this woman that I was like, listen, I want you to tell me exactly what you think. Like, is this the right price? Is this the right neighborhood? And there were three different houses that I can remember that we walked through and she was like, let's go look at the backyard. And we went in the backyard and she was like, you don't want this house. This is way too expensive. This is three things. And we were like, all right, let's go. <laughs> and we we didn't want to waste our time either, right? Like, so finding that, and that would not have been the right fit for everybody, but it was awesome for us. That personality interview was was great for us. That's an excellent tip. And then the, you brought up, so I'm going to ask you because you're a real estate agent, is there a good time of year to sell your home? Yes, there is absolutely a good time of year to sell your home. You want to sell it when there are the most people looking, which is the spring. They call it the spring selling season because that's when the most people are looking for a new house. So yeah, if you have the ability to list your house in February or March, do it. Awesome. Yeah. That's crazy how busy those open houses get in the spring. It depends on the market you're in, of course, right? But we were in Boston and it was just, it was wild. It would be, get to be the end of February and you'd see all the all the lines out the doors with for sale signs out front. <laughs> Crazy. But if you're getting your home ready to list, what should we do? Like, is there a benefit to fixing all the little things or like, what are we doing? First of all, your house needs to be clean. Clean, clean, eat off the floor, clean, 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 clean. I cannot say the word clean enough times. Your home is going to look the way it looks. Your walls are going to be, you know, bright purple or muted gray or whatever they are. But when somebody walks into a dirty house, they feel gross and they don't stay. It takes forever to sell. You get super lowball offers. Of course, the house that is the most up to date with the hot trendy colors on the walls and the the new flooring, that's going to sell the fastest. But your clean house is going to sell so much faster than your untidy house. And this sounds like such a stupid thing to say. I have walked into some of the most disgusting houses I've ever been in and just been like, I don't even know how you live like this, let alone how you show this house in this condition. Let other strangers into your house when it looks like this. I grew up with white carpeting on my floors, which is also stupid. So my mom (laughs) always made us take our shoes off. Yep. I walk into a house, I take off my shoes. That's the first thing I do. It's an ingrained thing. 
And there was a house. I walked back upstairs and put my shoes back on. I'm like, I don't know what that is, but I know I don't want to step in it. Yeah, that's not a good start. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to sell your house quickly, make it clean. Make it smell nice. You know, everybody's house has a scent. And your scent is, you know, that's your body. It's not necessarily unpleasant. It's just there. But it's, you know, you throw in a cat litter box that hasn't been changed for a few days. And you throw in a dog that hasn't been bathed in a week. And there starts to get some sort of, you know, unpleasant scent. So you definitely want the house to be as clean as possible so it smells as nice as possible. The cat smell is the worst. It, it really <laughs> in is. In my opinion. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to speak disparagingly of cats, but yeah, they don't smell pretty and they go inside. So you need to make sure that that's cleaned all the time. Is it worth fixing every little thing? Yes and no. If you've got a broken window, you should probably fix that. You know, there's a little chip in the wall. You should at least paint it so it's the same color. Do you need to replace all the light fixtures? No, but you could. You know, that might be something that refreshes the house. A fresh coat of paint in every bedroom is just going to take you, you know, every night you can paint one room. Yeah. And then it brightens up in a way that washing the walls does not. If you've got any weird colors on your walls, think beige and gray. You're not going to be living there anymore. You want to attract the most people. And not everybody likes fluorescent green. I learned that from personal experience. I really <laughs> liked the green, but everybody came in. They're like, why is that wall green? Because it's my house and I like green. But it's not <laughs> going to be your house. You need to make it a more sedate color. Yeah. What does your carpet look like? Is it worth it replacing the carpet? Maybe. Mm -hmm. Or maybe not. Maybe you offer a carpet credit at closing. You know, it really depends. If you walk into a house and there's the doorknob doesn't work or there's no doorknob on some of the, you know, little things make a big impression. And when you haven't taken care of those things, what else have you not taken care of? So yeah. I wouldn't suggest doing something big like a kitchen remodel just to sell a house that you already live in after talking about flipping houses where I do kitchen remodels. <laughs> but you're talking from, you're starting from a lower base, right? And you're starting from to... a much lower base. Yes. Yeah. One of the things we did when we sold our last house was we painted the baseboard right before our open house. And it was like, we had the previous owners had like dinged it and they had kids that, and it just looked worn. <laughs> and we were talking yep. about all the things we could do. And the paint was relatively new on the walls, but the baseboard was old. So we just put fresh white paint on the baseboards and it was amazing to me how different it looked when we came back in, like when it was completely done. And it was a, such a small thing, but I think it probably made a difference. But in the Boston market, I don't know, maybe we would have gotten offers anyway. You know what? There are houses that sit for a while, even in the hot markets, because they look old. I'm looking at my baseboards and my window trim right now. It's definitely <laughs> worn. Yeah. So what about appraisal, right? So we've done some of these things to clean it up so that when people come in, they feel light and new and clean. But what are appraisers looking at? And how can we make sure that our house appraises well? Appraisers are looking at this, hopefully, they're looking at the state of the house itself and how it compares to similar properties physically located near your property. I live in a custom and semi-custom home neighborhood with also some cookie cutter homes too. So my house floor plan is repeated, I don't know, out of the 300, I, there's probably 25 or 50 of my house in my neighborhood. And right around the corner from me, there was a house that sold for 490, I'm sorry, 598 about six months ago. I bought my house for 365. So clearly that one looks better. They're looking at the difference between that house and my house. Oh, they have nice floors and I have this carpet that used to be white. You know, so, but what kind of difference is that? I have a brand new bathroom that brings the value up of my house. So they look at what you paid for it, if it was recent, any improvements you've made and what other houses in the neighborhood are selling for. So when your, when your appraiser comes to check out your house, they're not supposed to look at the condition of the house, but again, a clean house is going to look nicer than a dirty house is. So you want to make sure that your appraiser, your house is in show condition for the appraisal. Mm -hmm. If you've done anything, especially something that isn't readily apparent, like a brand new electric system, nobody can see that. You yep. want to make sure that they know that that's there. All new plumbing. You know, hey, this kitchen is brand new. Oh, I didn't know that. Thanks for letting me know. Since I'm an agent, I go into the MLS and I look for recently sold houses. 
I just had an appraisal last week. I gave my appraiser a list of all the upgrades we've done and all the houses in the area that are sold that have sold recently that are the same the same style. And did that help? I'm not sure. You never know what the appraiser yeah. is going to look for, but you definitely want to make sure the house is clean and ready for him or her. And when you get your appraisal back, if it's low, like significantly low, make sure that they're appraising the right house. If you have a three-bedroom house, make sure that they marked it as a three-bedroom house. Make sure that they got both bathrooms. Make sure that they saw that there's you know, a basement or you know, whatever, yeah. just to make sure. Because appraisers make mistakes too. And the best time to catch that mistake is right away. Yeah, absolutely. It shouldn't be so far, especially if you're using a real estate agent, it shouldn't be so far off, right? Where you're listing it and selling it in general. Well, it shouldn't be. <laughs> but sometimes- No guarantee. Yeah, sometimes it's really far off. And what can you do about that? You can, when you have an offer for your property- the appraisal comes in low, you can lower the price. That's obviously the easiest thing to make everybody happy. You can ask the buyer to bring money to the table to cover the difference, which is maybe not so easy to do. You can ask for a new appraisal, but typically the buyer will have to pay for a new appraisal and the buyer really has to want the property at the price that you've agreed on in order to pay for a new appraisal. Yep. If they're getting an FHA loan, the appraisal sticks with the property for four months. So let's say that I am selling my house to Chelsea and Chelsea's FHA appraisal comes in at 245. And I say, well, that's ridiculous. We're under contract for 265. I'm just going to cancel the contract. Anybody else who's using an FHA loan in the next four months will automatically get that 245 price appraisal. And cause the same problem. And yep. cause the same problem. So what am I supposed to do? Well, I can cancel the contract with that buyer and then not accept an FHA loan. Um, I would have to accept a conventional loan instead. Gotcha. Okay. So last step of the process, once you have offers, are there good ways to negotiate the price to make sure you're getting the best deal possible? Well, it's not always price. You want to make sure, I mean, obviously, if you're offering me $100,000 more than somebody else, I'm probably going to go with your offer. But you know, you want to look at all of the conditions of the offer. There's the price. There's the amount of down payment that the buyer is making. There's uh, closing concessions, if any. And so let's go through that. There's the price. That's how much money they are telling you they're going to pay. And then there's the down payment. If you're making a 20% down payment, chances are good you're going to be able to get that loan. If you give me a pre-approval letter with your offer, that tells me you've already spoken to a lender. You're probably a little more serious than the guy who is writing it with a 3% down payment and has not spoken to a lender at all. How do I know you're even approved to buy? How do I know you're ever going to be approved to buy this? You might be making me an offer of $100,000 with no concessions, meaning I'm not giving you any money to help you with your closing costs, whereas he's offering me $102,000 and asking for $5,000 in concessions. You're still a better offer because it's a lower price point, but he's asking for more money off on the back end. That makes sense. Perhaps you want to take possession immediately, but we're in a seller's market and I need time to go and find another house to live in. So, you know, there's, it's not always just price. There's a lot of other things that you need to consider and you want to ask your agent to explain it all to you. Absolutely. There's a lot of moving pieces <laughs> in these processes. There are definitely a lot of moving pieces. And learning how to negotiate outside of price, I think is a really good place to start, especially with all the concessions that happen around what was the appraisal? What was the home inspection with the home inspector wanted fixed and what are they asking for? Those are good places, definitely good places to look to, to negotiate. Yep. Another thing to think of when you're looking, if you've got multiple offers, you're looking at different offers. One offer says nothing. The other offer says, we will have a home inspection, but we're only looking for major systems. We're not going to nickel and dime you. That might be the offer you want to go with because when they find the one broken pane of glass, that's what we did when we bought this house. There was a broken window. I already knew that. I can see it's broken. I don't need a home inspector to tell me that it's broken. 
I don't like when people come in and they get the property under contract and then they ask for everything in the home inspection. All right, Mindy, this is my last question for you. What about mamas who are interested in getting into real estate? What advice do you have for them about jumping in? Do it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The end. No, Uh, do your research. Not every property makes a good rental. Not every property makes a good flip. Not every property makes sense to buy at any price. There are some properties that they need so much work. I need you to write me a check in order for me to take that off your hands. You know, but there's also properties that are available that could work out really well. So you need to start doing research and knowing your market. Step number one, I would say, is to start receiving listings from a real estate agent. Just the Mm -hmm. automated listings that come over every day. Because by looking at these properties, just even looking at the pictures online, you can see, wow, a really nice house sells for $200,000 or a really dumpy house sells for $200,000. You know Mm -hmm. what the market is selling for or being listed at. You can start to learn what people are looking for. And then you see these properties when when a steal comes on the market, you're like, oh, I'm going to jump on that. Have a pre-approval. Talk to a lender and know how you're going to pay for your properties. You don't have to buy properties local. You can buy properties in other places. There's people, you know, especially on the coasts. It doesn't really make a lot of sense to be a landowner or a property owner like in New York City. It's cheaper to rent. Know your if you're trying to be a landlord, know your state's landlord tenant laws because some states are extremely pro landlord and some are extremely pro tenant. And Investing in a pro-landlord state is better. It's definitely easier. It's definitely easier. (laughs) I mean, that doesn't mean that you can't invest in pro-tenant states. And I know a guy who bought a property in California, which is notoriously pro-tenant. He had squatters in the property, and it took him five years to get them out through all legal means. They were professional tenants, and they didn't even have a right to be there. They were squatting. But they had been there for 30 days, so they now have tenancy. And every time he went to court to file an eviction, they would come in with a bankruptcy or they would come in with something else. And it just took forever. Oh, my gosh. You know, whereas in my state of Colorado, we're more landlord friendly. And if you don't have a right to be in the property, even if you do have a right to be in the property, if you're not paying rent, you no longer have that right. And you can be out in 30 days. Wow, five years. That's still blowing my mind a little bit. (laughs) I read his saga and it was a saga and it was so sad to watch somebody. I mean, he rightfully owns the property and can't get into it. That doesn't make sense to me. That makes no sense at all. But don't let that scare you from that. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm not. That was maybe that wasn't the best story to tell. But yeah, don't let that scare you. There are the majority of people who are renting your property are stand up human beings who just need a place to live. You want to do your research on, you know, how do you screen a tenant? You really want to know how to screen a tenant. You definitely want to have a set of criteria that you never sway from. You can even print those out and put it in a picture frame and have it at your your rental when you're showing your rental. So people see, oh, I need to have a 600 credit score. Okay, I don't qualify. Great, sorry. You know, but when you start to stray from those qualifications, you set yourself up for some issues. So definitely read your state landlord tenant laws, the state in which you are investing. Read the Fair Housing Act. Make sure you understand what you can and cannot ask. And, you know, just start educating yourself on what makes a good rental. I love that. Just starting even tracking the properties, right? But even before you think you're ready, just start watching the market and and paying attention is a great, great advice. Yeah. I mean, that's free. It's free and it becomes a hobby. You can hang out on bigger pockets with Mindy. <laughs> you know, I I would love to plug bigger pockets all day long, but th- it's a really great place to learn about real estate investing. It is. We have a blog, we have a forum where you can ask almost any question. We have a YouTube channel so you can watch videos. We have four podcasts now about different aspects of investing and money. So, it's a really great source of information for learning how to invest in real estate the right way. Awesome. All right, Mindy, before we let you go, we have to have you try on our version of the hot seat, which is our Smart Money Mama's sorting hat. I don't know if you're a Harry Potter fan, but... (laughs) I am. (laughs) The sorting hat is where we're going to pull a question out of our magical hat, and it's going to be about money or motherhood and life, and we'll see what it reveals about you. Are you ready? Ooh. 
what did you learn about money from your mom? Oh, I learned how to balance a checkbook for sure. She would sit us down and make us pay all their bills. Like it didn't come out of my bank account. It came out of her bank account, but I I learned how to fill out a checkbook. I learned how to be frugal because my mom was one of eight and my dad was one of seven. They never had any money ever. So they knew how to stretch a dollar till it broke. I learned that you don't buy retail. You go to garage sales and thrift stores. And I actually learned a lot about money from my mom. It sounds like it and definitely probably speeded your journey to financial independence. It did. I definitely get frugality from both of my parents. That's awesome. Well, Mindy, thank you so much for joining us today. I know people can find you on Bigger Pockets, but where else can they find you around the web and social media? They can find me everywhere. I am Mindy at BP. So that's M I N D Y A T BP for Bigger Pockets. And that's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I'm best on Twitter because I can use that on the computer. Instagram is only on my phone and it's really tiny. <laughs> and I'm old. I have very poor vision. Um, or they can email me, Mindy at biggerpockets.com. Awesome. Thanks so much, Mindy. Thank you, Chelsea. This is a lot of fun. Mamas, how great is Mindy? I loved getting to talk real estate with her. Her passion for the industry, her commitment to what was best for her and her family throughout her journey, and her carrying forward of the great money lessons from her parents were fantastic to hear about. I think I could have kept talking to her for several more hours. Real estate is one of those things that feels really scary to some mamas, and it does have a lot of moving pieces. But if you're willing to pay close attention to your market, figure out what strategy works for your family, house hacking, live-in flips, rental properties, it can be a great way to grow your wealth and create some true freedom in your life, which is always the goal, right? As always, I've rounded up my top takeaways from today's episode so you can walk away feeling focused. Let's be honest, though. These recaps are partially so I know I'm learning as much as possible from our fantastic guests, but hopefully they help you too. Are you ready? Let's recap. First, be willing to go against the crowd. Mindy and her husband reached financial independence right before her husband turned 40. She's been able to pursue her dream job, and he's been able to walk away from a stressful one. They do the things they're passionate about and that fulfill them. Part of how they got there was being willing to live the way most people just won't moving into an outdated house, living through renovations and learning to fix things, redo bathrooms and tear up carpet, moving with kids fairly often. Mindy didn't mention it in this episode, but she's moved with a three-month-old twice. There's two parts of this. On the real estate side, if you want the best price, you have to sacrifice somewhere. You don't get the perfect house for the super low price. If you want to get into this space, you need to learn to recognize the diamonds in the rough. On the money side, mama, we're pursuing thriving lives, lives where we feel lit up, fulfilled, energetic, and free. I wish everyone lived like that, but look around. They don't. Pursuing and achieving that life requires you to find the confidence and determination to be a little different. And if being different brings you closer to a whole and thriving life, it sounds worth stretching your comfort zone to me. Second, be committed to the goal, but flexible in the execution. Mindy and her husband target moving about every two years to keep making good money with their live-in flips. But when their daughters made a close friend whom they loved in the neighborhood, they took a pause and stayed there longer than they might have otherwise. Mindy mentioned throughout the episode that her family does real estate investing, stock market investing, and that they're very frugal. Their goal has always been the freedom and options that come with financial security. Yet I love that they didn't lose sight of the true end goal, a happier, healthier family life. Could they have done another flip or two in that seven years when they stayed in one place? Maybe, but their girls were happy. And if that meant focusing on stock market investments and frugality for a little bit, so be it. Happiness was more important. Sometimes we set these big targets. I want to be a VP by 35. I want to double my income in the next 10 years. And we forget in that journey to pursue that, why we set those goals in the first place. Remember what you're working for. Don't let the milestone distract from your true motivation. And finally, third, when you see an opportunity that's perfect for you, don't take yourself out of the running because of potential roadblocks. Okay. When Mindy started to tell the story of seeing that community manager listing for bigger pockets and how the job came up four months before she was really ready and that she decided to not tell her husband about it, I'll be honest, 
my heart started to race. Even though I knew she ultimately got the job, I mean, we'd already talked about her doing the job, I was still sitting there like, oh no, what would have happened if someone else hadn't posted within bigger pockets asking how long they were willing to rate for the right person? Mindy might have lost out on being in a job that values her and that she truly enjoys. Opportunities aren't always going to look perfect. There will be a roadblock that feels scary or it's just not quite the right time. Don't take yourself out of the running before you even get in the race. Apply, ask questions, do your research. The worst anyone can tell you is no. So fight for your perfect chances. You deserve it. You've got this. Mamas, I want to thank Mindy again for joining me on the show and our sponsor, Debt.com, for helping make this episode possible. If you'd like to see the full show notes for this episode, with links to Bigger Pockets and Mindy's social media platforms, or to download your free Money Mama's Guide to Investing, visit us at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Mindy. Keep talking, Money Mamas. I'll see you next time. <laughs>